Hello and welcome to the April edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up I'll be speaking to fundraiser Richard Pollins. Now Richard has a remarkable tale to tell. He was actually born without legs but it has not stopped him. The amount of money he has raised is truly inspirational. We'll find out about that a little later on. I'm John Kay and Israel goes to the polls this month. There are several political parties involved. Baruch Vellerman lives most of the time in Israel, some of the time in North London, and he's the treasurer of a little-known political party in Israel called Pashut Ahava, Simply Love. I'm Kate Fulton and I'm going to be talking to Rabbi Simon Taylor. Now his grandfather was Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen MBE who passed away recently at the age of 102 and he was a Second World War veteran and a former chairman of the Jewish veterans group Ajax. And I'm Tony Honigberg and I'm going to be talking to Emily Rose Simons and Emily Rose is a London-based musical theatre writer, composer and lyricist with lots of credits to her name. And as if all of that isn't enough, our Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips will be giving us a rather splendid sounding recipe. But before all that, with a roundup of the main news stories from the past months, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Israeli Prime Minister has said his country is responding forcefully to wanton aggression as retaliatory airstrikes were launched on Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip. It was in response to a rocket from Gaza which struck a house in the town of Mishmeret, northeast of Tel Aviv. Seven people, including at least one child, were injured. The house belongs to the Wolf family, who are originally from London. Donald Trump has said that 52 years on, it's time to recognise Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. It was the president's latest comment to break with international opinion. He tweeted that the Golan is of critical strategic importance to the state of Israel and to regional stability. Trump's announcement came just days before Benjamin Netanyahu visited the United States. And Mr Netanyahu has promised the Israeli people a referendum on joining the European Union after Brussels said there'd be a space after Britain leaves. Mr Netanyahu made the comment during a press conference about the Eurovision Song Contest, which Israel will be hosting in May. The EU did not deny the offer, which came as figures showed EU-Israel trade is at record levels. Yuri Geller has written to Theresa May vowing he can stop Brexit telepathically. The illusionist told the Prime Minister that he will not allow her to lead Britain out of the EU. Mr Geller, who now lives in Israel, used to have a house in Sonning, which is within Mrs May's Maidenhead constituency, and said she'd visited his home. A high-profile police investigation into former Jewish Leadership Council Chief Executive Jeremy Newmark has been shelved. Police were apparently probing fraud allegations against Mr Newmark relating to his time at the charity. An independent report had found that more than £110,000 of JLC funds couldn't be accounted for, but that the absence of key documents had seriously hampered inquiries. Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen, the Second World War veteran and former chairman of Jewish veterans group Ajax, has died at the age of 102. He'd worked tirelessly over decades, educating people about the war, and received an MBE just last year. He joined the army in 1940, having heard about the plight of European Jews from refugees arriving in his native Sunderland. He had an impressive legal career post-war, and he and his wife, Judge Morella Cohen QC, made legal history as the first married couple to both hold full-time judicial roles. And that's the News Roundup this month. 
Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, you may have noticed there's a little bit of a difference to the Jewish views. We did warn you at the end of 2018 that we were going to have a bit of a makeover in time for 2019, and here it is. We now are coming to you from JW3. This is where we will be recording the programme each month. That is the biggest difference. Of course, it has gone to a monthly programme. But most things will remain the same. We're still going to have our rabbinic thoughts, and not to mention we're going to have some of the great guests that you're used to and love hearing. And as if all of that isn't enough, we've still got the same great old team as well. Everyone's here as well. How nice is this, everyone? It's <laughs> fabulous. I love it. We're in the lobby of JW3, so you've got all the buzz and the atmosphere and people coming and going. And I think we found our niche. And for once, we'll be able to get a cup of coffee and something to eat because you know that wasn't the case in the past. No, we did starve a little, didn't so we? So yes, past, what, could, what could be better? And so many people coming through for so many things that are going on here so many sessions whether it's adult education or culture there's plenty happening if you haven't been to jw3 you must come just to have a look if nothing else there is just so much buzz and so much going on now if you fancy coming to see how we record the program and how it's all put together you'd be very welcome to come along every fourth thursday of each month come and watch us we'll be here live at jw3 from midday and I think this is the start of something really great for the Jewish views, don't you, everyone? I hope so. I think it's brilliant. You'll put the data on the website, of course, won't we? We'll have that data when we're recording on the website. Sound reasoning. Indeed we will. We'll make sure that you know. And don't do what I do. Come out of Finchley Road and Frognall Station and turn right. You turn <laughs> left. Definitely turn left at Finchley Road and Frognall Station. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. So Israel goes to the polls this month. Who's going to win? Well, people a few months ago were saying probably Benjamin Netanyahu and Likud, and he may well still win. Having said that, in the polls, they seem to have been having quite strong competition from blue and white, which is a combination of two parties, Yesh Atid and also Israel Resilience. They may well get more seats than Likud, Having said that, can they form a coalition government? Because that's what's needed in Israel. Well, Baruch Barend Velleman lives in Israel. He also spent some time in North London as well. And he's the treasurer of a lesser-known party simply called Pashut Ahava, Simply Love. He joins us from Israel now. Baruch, how many parties are competing in the Israeli elections? Well, originally there were 47 but that's uh, gone down a bit. Uh, quite a number have dropped out. We're uh, over, but still over 30 parties. And Simply Love, the party that you're treasurer of, what's the idea of that one? Simply Love was founded by somebody called Lily Weisberger, who founded or is the, one of the le- main leaders of a very large organization, mainly women's organization, called Women Wage Peace. During the protective edge, Suk Etan War, five years ago in Gaza, her son was in the army, was in Gaza, and she spent 50 days waiting for the dreaded knock on the door, absolutely in trauma, in fear. And she promised herself that she would not let that feeling go if everything turned out right, which thank God it did for for her and her son. And afterwards, she heard that some women wanted to start a movement to push for peace. And she joined it, became uh, really its leader, Women Wage Peace, which is now 50,000 strong. They marched across the country 
from the Lebanese border to the lowest spot on earth, the Dead Sea, stopping in the desert to meet over a thousand Palestinian women who got there. Not all women, many men supported it as well. And they then went to the Knesset. And she had a dream during those 50 days of Suketan that she would chain herself to the prime minister's residence demanding peace. She didn't do that. They camped outside the prime minister's residence for a number of months. They carried out a hunger strike. People would carry out a hunger strike for 24 hours or three days within a tent. They erected a tent of peace. And people at the, at the beginning, only a few people came. Eventually, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people came. Pe- members of parliament came. She obviously has a high profile. She is, yeah, well, profile. She is well known in Israel. But is that That's enough a, for so a small decided, party to actually get any seats in the Knesset? So what she decided was that, that it's not enough to be opposite the Knesset. She needs to go into the Knesset. And she joined together with a number of Arab friends to form the first party in Israel, the first Zionist party, that is 50% Jewish and 50% Arab. And 80% of, of the candidates and, and the membership so far are women. What sort uh, of support, have... though, do you think that the Arab community will give to this party? Because traditionally, they often vote for Arab political parties. Well, traditionally, only 50-something percent of the Arab population vote. Over 42 percent have never voted. We travel around the country in our campaign bus, having parlor meetings all over the country in Jewish and Arab villages and towns and cities. In the Arab areas, we are having a tremendous response. In the area of Arara, which is central Israel, a large Arab area, we had a meeting of about 50 people. Traditionally, in any meeting, the men sit at the front and the women at the back. The, one, the, the candidate, the number three on our list, who is the head of the municipality's gender equality department, she had arranged that all the women sat at the front and the men at the back for the first time ever. The women were in tears. They said, we have never voted. We've never had anybody we wanted to vote for. We didn't feel it, it was our country. Now we have a party that we want to vote for. And this is being replicated across the country. Targeting the Jewish community, is it likely that those people who have sympathy with the more left-wing parties, perhaps traditionally merits, is that the sort of vote you're after? Well, the question was asked. Free army year course in in the kibbutz where I live, in Kanaton in the north, and the course, of course, the first question that is asked is, aren't you going to take votes away from merits? And Lily's answer, and the number two on the list, who is Dr. Rabia Bassis, who was the head of education in Daliat El Carmel. She's the first Druze woman ever to stand for the Knesset. And she was part of the Trachtenberg Committee that was set up by the government after all the tent demonstrations against the cost of living in 2011. I don't know if you remember that, with Daphne Leaf, etc. What she said and what Lily said was that for the last 30 years, Merit has been trying with a wonderful program to attract Israel's voters. It's never had more than six seats. It's never had more than one member of Knesset who is from the Arab communities. Somehow, the the country does not buy it. Does that mean then that 
really you're you're trying to compete with them rather than competing with some of the other political parties. So they could lose out, you might gain, but nonetheless, if you like, the liberal left is not going to benefit necessarily. Well, we are starting a revolution. Politics, John, as I'm sure you, you agree, over the last, it seems to have changed over the last 10, 10 years across the world. Politics has become filled and based on hate and fear and cynicism, whether it's in Israel, in the UK, obviously now, in, in America and across Europe. And something has got to change. Movements are, are, are spreading and starting up across the world. Can I ask you whether you feel that President Trump's support for Israel's claim over the Golan Heights will in fact specifically help Netanyahu but generally help the right? It's very difficult to tell. I, the, the election advertising started on television. They were only allowed to do that two weeks before. And the Likud advert, the whole advert was Trump talking about Netanyahu. That was the whole advert. Now, for some people, that will gain votes. And for a lot of people, I imagine that's very off-putting. A lot of people are getting very angry about the hate against uh, the blue and white leader, Benny Gantz. This is actually in the advert. And a lot of people think this has gone over the top. And I think, I have a feeling there is going to be a backlash in this election. A backlash against all this hate and the demonization of, of, of other candidates. We have to change the conversation that we have at election time and in politics in Israel and in the world. A well, group we have to leave it there. We, we, we will see what happens not only in Israel, but in Britain and, of course, the United States in a year or two's time as well. Baruch Baren Velleman in Israel, thank you for joining us on Jewish Views. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, I have the pleasure of talking to Rabbi Simon Taylor, who is the grandson of Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen, MBE. Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen passed away, sadly, recently at the age of 102. He was an incredible man. He was a Second World War veteran, and he was a chairman of Jewish veterans group Ajax and many other things as well. And Simon, you're his, you're his grandson. Yes, that's correct. So, I actually, I had the pleasure of, of meeting your grandfather a, a, a couple of years ago, and it really was a very a most fascinating experience. But just to sort of set his set his experiences in context, tell us a bit about his early life. I think he was born in 1916, wasn't he? What was his life at home like? Uh, he grew up in a very loving, traditional Jewish home where he had very strong Jewish values imbued in him from from a young age. He had brothers and, and sisters? He had brothers and, and a sister. And he, at an early age, went to went into the army? Um, yes, he did. What made did. a nice Jewish boy, nice Jewish boy of, of that, uh, I think he was from Sunderland, wasn't he? What made him go into the army? 
he heard, unfortunately, horrific stories from girls that were brought over on the kinder transport. And he felt that it was his duty to do something about it, really to do whatever he could to serve his country and to help really this huge amount of Jewish people in need. And so he decided to enlist in the army, which he received from his, from his parents and was really ran deep in his veins, this leadership element and that he had to lead by example. And when there was something that needed to get done, he was always the first first one to, to stand up and go and make it happen. It must be very hard because actually he was already a qualified solicitor, I understand, by then, which means that he had a career and most people would have carried on with their career and followed it through. But he chose to to help the European Jews. How, how was that taken yeah. with the family? Was he married by then? He was not. He was not, but exactly as you said, he'd already started a very promising career as a lawyer. And he, he didn't think twice about putting everything on hold. To him, it was obvious. He had to do what needed to be done. And, he, and despite the, his promising uh, career as a, as a lawyer and having his own practice, he realized that there was far more important things that needed to be done, and that was his duty. And when you, when you I suppose, you must have chatted to him as, as his grandson, what, was his, what were the stories? What did he relate to you about his times during the war? Our grandfather was very humble and modest person and he did not like to share any stories from the war with us and talk about any of his heroism the special awards that he got from the queen all of his medals of course his his very high rank which he achieved all of those things were things that we knew about and we heard about but we never heard them directly from him tell us some of his greatest achievements Obviously, you didn't hear from directly from him because yeah. of the uh, modesty reasons, sure. but tell, tell us some of his greatest achievements. One of the, the biggest honours he received was that he was mentioned in dispatches. And this is a big honour, and in military circles, something which everybody knows is a big deal. And the most we ever got from our grandfather, we'd always ask him, what was this honour for? And the, the response we'd get was either, boy... <laughs> Or oh, one, one time I got my, brigad- my brigadier recommended me, and that was about as far as we got. But doing a little research, we haven't found the exact story, but, but it seems as though it's for extreme bravery of some kind. Wow, that really is very, very impressive. And it's, um, it's a shame that we don't know the details of it, but we do know that he, well, he was a very special man. How long was he in the army for? Well, he, he served for, you know, several years throughout the war and then he remained in the territorial army until the 1960s so he was really involved in the military for for a long time and he was also involved in education i believe he was very passionate about education and making sure that the youth were educated in general and everyone was always reaching their potential and receiving the highest level of education possible. So he was very involved in the Sunderland Polytechnic, which became the Sunderland University. He was actually the first chairman, and he was honored by them with an honorary doctorate just a couple of years ago. But you know, beyond that, he spent decades educating in schools all around the country about the Second World War and about the commitments of the serving the armed forces uh, during the war and he really 
volunteered his time up until really uh, a couple of years ago. Even when it was difficult for him to, to go out, he would go and volunteer to speak in schools to make sure the young, you know, the, the next generation understand about all of the commitment, dedication, the sacrifice that was put in during the Second World War. And what about and, his commitment to Ajax to, and also, I suppose, in local politics? He was, he was quite a, an active member there. Absolutely. He was very involved in Ajax. I would say that all of the uh, ex-servicemen and women who really uh, did so much for the country, he felt it was his, you know, his duty to take a very big role. He acted as the chairman, but even when he wasn't the chairman, it was uh, an organization that he gave much of his time to and making sure that the ex-servicemen and women were taken care of, they were recognized properly for all the sacrifice that, that they gave. And again, to make sure that most importantly for him is that the next generation understood exactly you know what that meant mm -hmm. and of course that the whole of England would realize what a large Jewish contingency uh, was involved in the war efforts. And in a lovely and, sort of circle of, of these, the way these love things come to completeness you're in the army yourself as a chaplain is that right? Correct something which was really a big you know delight for my grandfather is, that must have made uh, him very about, proud. Yes, about about six years ago, uh, I began as a reserve chaplain in the British Army, and it's it's really wonderful for me to have that connection with the British Army and to, uh, also to be able to give back uh, to the country, and of course, you know, help out as a chaplain. Uh, it's a very meaningful it's very meaningful work, and it was something which my grandfather took a lot of pride in. Rabbi Simon Taylor, grandson of Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen, MBE. Thank you. If you'd like any more information on our guests and stories, visit our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3, and my guest in the studio here at JW3 is Emily Rose Simons. Now, Hello. Emily, you go by the name of Emily Rose in your professional writing career. Yes. yes. But you're Emily Rose Simons. Tell me a little bit about your personal background, where you grew up. And I grew up in High Barnet, which is a fun little area to grow up in as a Jew. So I'm not... I wasn't in the northwest London Jewish bubble. I was in a very English-centric bubble. Anyway, but yes, High Barnet, and then I went to Mill County. I went to Haberdashers for two years. That was a, having Mill County and Haberdashers in my educational background makes me a slightly more interesting person, I think, or at least that's what my counsellor says. No, anyway. <laughs> and I've always been going to lots of music and throughout school, constantly going to music lessons. And that's exactly what I told the teachers <laughs> where I was going. I've always been very musically minded. I've always wanted to write music theatre. I remember one day being in the car listening to Elaine Page on a Sunday on the way to choir rehearsal. And I said to my dad, Dad, I, I think I want to write musical theatre. I think that's what I want to do. And my dad turned to me and said, Emily, it is inevitable that you'll become a lawyer. <laughs> anyway, so I write musical theatre. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about your parents. Were your parents involved in, in theatre or acting or the entertainment industry at all? Not at so, all. So where does your background come from with that? Any further back? Grandparents or anything? No. No, so you're the first in the family to yeah, be involved. Yeah, we, we, love, we love music and my grandma 
would talk about going to concerts in London as she was growing up. And my dad has always got classic FM or classical music on in the house. Or Elaine Page. Or Elaine Page. Elaine Page was a special... <laughs> A special consideration for Sundays and my mum would always listen to Radio 2 so it was kind of like a war between Classic FM and Radio 2 in the house at all times. Okay, did, did, <laughs> did you do any theatre at Habs while you were there? Because I know lots of people went to Habs and, and a lot of people got involved with theatre. Yeah, so I was there for two years and I got involved, I was in the girls auditioned choir that won choir of the, of the year a couple of years before I got there and I wrote music and I got I was involved as much as the music students tend to be involved. I had a problem as a child and as a teenager and even at university that I had a great love and enjoyment and and a passion for theatre and singing and performing. I wasn't very good at singing or performing so <laughs> it kind of put a damper on things that I would audition for everything and not get it because people have ears and it would be a problem. I've auditioned for hundreds of things over the years and not got them but sometimes you just but hit it right. At, at school it's a special <laughs> at school it's kind of like you you can do this you have talent child go go forth and sometimes it's like you have great passion and you'll be a really good at whatever you do one day because of your passion singing shouldn't be that my voice has come in a little bit more and I have charm when I perform now anyway so I've always loved music and, and performing and all those things and yeah. T- tell us about the university you went to where did you yes. go so Which I went university? to University of Bristol and I studied music and again we had the similar thing of Emily auditions for everything and gets nothing <laughs> and somehow I found myself in the barbershop scene at Bristol which is it was big when I was there it's grown even more and it's spread into London and I sang a lot of barbershop I arranged a lot of barbershop I kind of put musical theatre on the back burner so that I could concentrate on making amazing arrangements of pop songs for (laughs) choirs just just because you can't sing doesn't mean to say you can't arrange music and you can't write music yeah I, I remember watching Sammy Khan who would be singing some of his own songs to people that he wanted them to sing the songs and and actually he almost couldn't hit a note he was he was really quite flat but he could write music so writing music doesn't equate to really being being able to perform music let's go on to to your your (laughs) musical theater that you've done because i've got a list as long as my arm of things that you've been involved in i got to the end of university and I decided, right, I, I have to write. I'm, I'm a musical theatre writer and I've written nothing. So let's do something about that. I didn't know any musical theatre performers. And I wrote a one-woman musical because I had to write something and I had to present something to the world. And that was Confession of a Rabbi's Daughter. So Confession of a Rabbi's Daughter, I decided I was going to write a musical. And I'd just been to the mood. And so I submitted a session to the mud called Confession of the Rabbi's Daughter. Emily Rose will perform her new one-woman musical. And I hadn't written it at that point when I submitted it. And so I was like, great, I've got, <laughs> got a couple of months. Let's write this musical mm-hmm. and let's, let's see what happens. And then I just kept going and I kept putting it into things. It's gone to Edinburgh Fringe. It's been to the Tank Theatre in New York. It's been to Upstairs at the Gatehouse. It's been here. So that was the very first one. But whilst I was doing that, I... Two years I was also doing stand-up comedy and different things in and around London and England and Bristol and Southwest. And I 
ended up going off to New York for three years. It was a dream of mine and it came to being that I could actually do it. So I went to study on the graduate musical theatre writing programme at Tisch. And this is, it's an, it's an insane course, but it's, it's also amazing. It's insane and amazing and also very tiring and you, because you're writing about a dozen songs and questioning life. But it's, it's, a, it's an amazing course. And other people who have come out of that course include the writer of Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, the writer... Mindy Dixine, who wrote Little Women, who's one of my mm-hmm. teachers. And I was taught by William Finn, who wrote Falsettos. And so you had a good background when you, when you were learning yeah. all of this, which is great. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. your, your passion is, is, is wonderful. Oh, Tell me, you're, you're doing something at JW3 mm-hmm. coming up, which will be here on the 19th of May, yes. on, which is a Sunday evening at 7.30, JW3. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this performance Yes, it'll be here in a couple of months. So the first thing is, uh, Sarah Siegel has put together Cavalier Your Darlings. I've been to the, I, I watched the first one, it's, it's amazing. And she selects three pieces that people are working on to present as a scratch night, but it's a very high standard scratch night. I hope I can be of that standard. This one, I've actually, I've seen a scratch performance of Tamara's piece couple of months ago and that's I don't know how it's changed since I've seen it but when I saw it it was it was hilarious and darkly beautiful and funny and interesting and that's the the holocaust brunch Mm. piece that I'm excited to see again my piece is called the repatriate it is about 27 year old who loses her visa to America ends crashing back in North London and she can't get out of bed and it's that time of year when there's loads of Jewish festivals and it's going to be looking at the later 20s and stasis and when someone's reached a part in their life where like I am still and I need to rejig and it'll be looking at that so a bit of fun and and it'll be sad and and, and all the emotions and everything else yeah the the template that i'm working with on this piece is company sondheim uh, which is currently on nice on the west end on the west end with rosalie craig my my version is a little bit closer to the rule esparza version Uh, i feel like rosalie craig's version is beautiful in the way that she moves she there's there's this wanting to move forward whereas the role Esparza version, he is still, he, he is happy in this stasis throughout the entire piece and then he clicks into motion and this is the, and also the way that the songs and the, it's kind of like a stage song cycle, that's where this piece that I'm working on is living. Fabulous. Emily Rose, thank you very much for coming and thank talking you. to us and good luck with, not only with the thing that you've got at JW3 on the 19th of May, but good luck with everything else that you're doing. Just keep going for it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, our next guest on this month's episode has a truly remarkable story. And I think the word inspirational is battered around oh so often. But believe me when I say when we learn about Richard Pollins, who we're about to speak to now, you will absolutely agree with that statement. Now, Richard, I think it's probably best if we hear this from you. But why is the concept of you doing a sponsored walk so extraordinary? Well, it's hard for And don't be modest. Just, uh, don't yeah, be modest. I agree with all of that. But uh, the, I was born without legs and 
uh, when I was, which was a surprise to everybody at the time. Nobody knew that was going to happen, and the doctors told my mother that I would, I would probably not be able to walk. And you know, that was quickly proved wrong, and and lots of effort, largely from my parents, went went into making sure that I learnt to balance from a very young age and learnt to use artificial legs. So I have just done a 40 kilometer walk for 10 kilometers a day for four days to, to raise money and awareness for motor neuron disease. Now, there, and, there is a reason behind you raising money specifically for motor neurons disease, which we're going to get yes. into in just a moment's time. But I, I don't want you to, to move away from this modesty just yet, because they need to establish, put us in the mindset of what it's like in your world every day because I appreciate you probably don't know any different because you've never known different but obviously a lot of people listening will think well, hang on a second you know how how is it different with using prosthetic limbs and and how does it work for you because it's not even as if you were born with leg stumps that could actually be no. attached so how does it work if you see what I mean yeah well I I, I use artificial legs whenever I leave the house. I never use them when I'm in my house. And they work in that it's a socket that I position myself into and kind of it balance, built to my, exactly my measurement so it fits exactly around me. And then I use crutches, at, it's, it's called swing through. I literally put the crutches in front and then I pull my legs and body through. Because and, there is actually no muscle structure in place to move the prosthetic legs, is there? No, no, it's all from my upper body. It's all from my shoulders. Which sounds absolutely uh, extraordinary. And really, it's so... I know you don't think so, but it is inspirational. Truly, it is. Now, tell us why you were raising money for motor neurons research. Rather tragically for our family, my mum was diagnosed with the condition three years ago now. And it's not a condition, a disease that we knew that much about, but it's been a pretty terrible thing to witness and to see how she's been so affected by it and because she's been such a such a strong person probably the key person in getting me to where I've got to today it it just felt like the right thing to do to do something to show her how important she is to us well quite right so sir but maybe you'll inform those of us who perhaps don't know that much about motor neurons what it is and how it affects an individual yeah i'm not i'm not a scientist myself either but it's it's from my layman's understanding it, it it's a disease which attach attacks all the motor neurons and the motor neurons are what connects the messages from your brain to the muscles in your body so it it just affects literally every part of you Apart from the brain, she's still the same person and she's still the same character. But her, her, her you know, physically, is she's can, can not do much by herself. And she can't talk, unfortunately, anymore. She uses an iPad connected to some voice banking that she did before this happened. But even that is difficult now because only her right, she only has her right hand and, and that is hard to use so it's it's a really unforgiving condition and 
on the positive side, the, the kind of scientists that I've, I've met recently and MND Association, who I've spoken speaking for a lot of time with, they seem confident or positive at least that they are on the verge of something. And so I was keen to highlight it and, and to do my bit to help with sort of raising funds for research. And one can only begin to imagine just what a beastly impact this must have had on your family, watching your lovely mother, in essence, deteriorate like this must be horrendous. Yeah, it, it has for for obviously for her and for my dad and my me and my brother and sister. Yeah, it has, it has been. But luckily, we all live nearby and we all do our bit to kind of make sure we all see each other as much as possible and take as many grandchildren as round as possible. I mean, there are five in total, so that's not bad going. And now, as far as the actual money that you have raised is concerned. Tell us a bit about, well, first and foremost, tell us how much the total has got to to date, because it's very impressive, to say the yeah. least. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, uh, funny enough, the whole concept of 40K, I, touched, I recently turned 40, and this is, this is the midlife crisis I'm um, bestowing on myself. So I, I thought I would like 40K for 40K, I thought it sounded quite good. So without really knowing that I had the kind of physical ability to do 40K and whether I knew, <laughs> had the fundraising ability to make 40k that's that's what i went for and we with a lot of sort of social media help and i've just massively gone through it i've now gone i've now gotten past sixty thousand pounds which is amazing um, absolutely amazing I'm, 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 I'm thrilled yeah and how is this money going to be used because obviously we know the cause that it's going towards yeah but do we know how the money gets spent what kind of research has to go into the disease it is, it is all ring-fenced for, for a specific research project to go into the g- g- genetics of the disease. I met the guy who's doing it, and it's we've actually gone further, it almost funded almost two-thirds of the project, and I was, I was planning to fund half of it, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. If you're going to grill me on, <laughs> on the details of what he's doing, I'm afraid <laughs> you, you, need, you need him more than me. I know it involves zebrafish. And they are pretty confident that essentially they're all working collaboratively on all these different projects globally, is my understanding, on the differences, specifics on genetics. This is something that looks at hereditary MND as comparison with other forms. And the more they can find out about the genetics involved, the more they can target it i hope i'll be perfectly honest with you i think you lost me at zebrafish but even so i would say let's talk about what we can talk about how did the actual logistics work with you doing 10k a day what route did you take how did that work how did you get there and did you have people cheering you on i hope well yeah i had people with me at every 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 stage i the first day i started at king's college hospital at the institute where they do the sort of research that I'm funding. Uh, I met the you met the kind of staff there, and I went from there, which is in Denmark Hill in South London, to past the Oval and a number of other kind of landmarks, London Bridge, and en- ended up at the Shard. And then on the second day, it was a much more circular route because I was trying to stay quite a lot in central London, which is nice and flat. So I went from the Shard, so picked up from there, and what. What what kind of around London Bridge in a circle for 5k, and then the further the last 5k was, took me from there to to Trafalgar Square, 
through a demonstration of kid climate change campaigners in Westminster. And then on the Saturday, I went from Trafalgar Square past Buckingham Palace through the Serpentine and past Lord's Cricket Ground and ended up that day at London Zoo. And which was all three days great for kind of proper central London landmarks, great things to see. And the final day was not that, it was my my family landmarks, which was from my synagogue at Belsize Square, which was has always been my family synagogue, including hold my mother's life as well. And we the whole the whole Hader kind of waved us off and went down the Finchley Road and to my parents' house who live in Woodside Park. Well, do you know what? I think it sounds utterly remarkable and muzzled off from all of us here on The so Jewish much. Views. A sensational achievement, as done by Richard Pollins, who's been telling us about his fundraising efforts. If people want to donate to your cause, then we are going to put a link on our website, jewishviews.co.uk, and people will be able to find your Just Giving page there. But for now, Richard Pollins, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on this month's episode of The Jewish Views. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email us studio at jewishviews.co.uk on Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. And I have taken a step away from JW3 and I find myself at the heart of some of the finest Jewish cookery you are ever going to experience in your life. I am, of course, talking about being in Denise Phillips's kitchen. And Denise is with me now. We're going to talk all things Pesach because I cannot believe I'm saying this. It feels like only yesterday that we were talking about Pesach last time round. So this year has come round just as quickly. And I'm sure that you've got something just as delicious to share with us. So welcome to my abode. Welcome to the place where it all happens. So we're thinking Pesach this year. I think it's just a very good date this year because it falls on the bank holiday. This is this year. Pesach commences Friday the 19th of April, which really means you might have some extra helpers around the house, big or small, to help you get ready for Seder night. Always like to give you a few little tips to get yourself organised because often we think Pesach and we think panic. But what I want to do is think Pesach and think well prepared. So here are a little few tips before I give you a recipe. But obviously after Purim we have four weeks. So you make use of those four weeks. Um, a schedule of what to do. I always like to actually, to be honest, work from upstairs, downstairs to get things ready. But for me, the first thing to get ready is my freezer. If my freezer is kosher for Pesach, at least, you know, if I do buy anything, I can put it straight in. And when you're thinking about your Seder, Always do recipes that are easy to serve, will not dry out if the Seder service goes on longer than anticipated. Which, let's be honest, it always does. <laughs> it does, it does. And leftovers, well, you know, the whole family going to be there for the whole weekend and probably Monday too. So leftovers will be fine for yont of lunch. So do, you know, make ahead, cook ahead. And just say, choose recipes that are created KFP, kosher for Pesach. We're really lucky. Every year we have new ingredients of kosher for Pesach. And this year, one particular one which is great is coconut milk and coconut cream. So you can use those, which are also vegan, 
great creations. I've made an amazing Thai leek soup with coconut milk. I've also made some cakes using coconut milk too. But what I want to say is that, you know, go early to those supermarkets and suss out what's new because leave it to the last minute, they won't be there. So shopping early is a must and also be smart when you cook. You can always get extra boxes of mozzarella. Don't be tempted to buy the kosher papesa, too big, larger quantities of things like ketchup, because you aren't going to want that potato meal and potato flour. I know that maybe it's the marketing, but to buy them, you know, too larger quantities, you are not going to want to use those, and they'll be there this time next year. You'll be throwing it out, and I can assure you, you don't use it all. So, and it's amazing how the expiry dates are always just before next year's pest. I know, I know, that's exactly the issue. So what I'm saying, <laughs> buy savvy, and if you can, you can, and there is such a thing called chowamowit. You can go and top up if you should need, but. I would air, especially on the boxes, buy slightly less than you really need. Or be really clever. This year, for the first time ever, Manish Tana Halayla Hazair. Why is this night different? For, or why is this Pesach different? Make a list of what you had this year. So next year, of what you made or what you did, you have a record. What was really popular with the family and what was a disaster. So that going forward, you have the best Seder night ever. And have you got an idea of what might be popular for this year? Okay, so we are going vegan because I think everybody likes something different. Well, I have a really great new recipe. And this is called, it's nutty red cabbage steaks. We've done the cauliflower steaks, but now we're going red cabbage. So what you do is you take one large red cabbage, and this is really economical if you've got a real house full for dinner, and slice it so that you've got thick wedges. And you're going to put those thick wedges of red cabbage onto a baking sheet drizzle it with a little of olive oil salt and pepper and you can put other spices and maybe something like paprika if you wanted if you like that on the seasoning and then you're going to roast this for about 30 to 30 minutes and when it comes out you can just garnish it and then what you're going to do is put toasted flaked almonds toasted hazelnuts and toasted pecan nuts because once they're toasted they have the most amazing flavor and then again decorate it with cherry tomatoes on the vine it's a little bit of mint some lemon juice maple syrup a little olive oil sprinkle it on top they look really cool so it's a great side dish as well as a snack or lunch or add it to the seder night menu well, because, I'm now drooling. Because you. <laughs> you can have that hot, cold, warm, and there's nothing going to go wrong with your red cabbage steaks. Thank you very much indeed for that, Denise. If people want more information, where do they go? On my website, so that's jewishcookery.com. It sounds delicious. Hug some to you. Best dishes. Our rabbinic thought for this month is from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from the new North London Mazorti Synagogue. I was very excited to run the Jerusalem Marathon two weeks ago now. I did it in aid of Israel Guide Dogs, whom I first got to know, I can't even remember how many years ago. I saw their center, the training for dogs. I learned how it brings life, mobility, opportunity, independence back to people who've either got very little sight, been blind for birth, or suffered blindness as a result of fighting to defend Israel in Israel's wars. The dogs are, of course, gorgeous and completely winning and appealing, but it's expensive to train them. And I was delighted for the second year running to do the Jerusalem Marathon in sponsorship of Israel's guide dogs. My community and friends and the British friends of Israel guide dogs are extremely generous. And I knew I had their wind at my back when I set off Friday a fortnight ago. 
Thursday in Jerusalem, it stormed and there was torrential rain. In fact, on the Shabbat afterwards, it also stormed with strong winds and heavy rain. So I thought I'd better acquire a thin jacket because running for four and a bit hours in torrential water was not fun. In the event, the day dawned utterly beautiful. It's a big event in Jerusalem. Taxi drivers complain that the roads are completely shut, that you can't get to the shops, that Friday acquisitions are really difficult. But for me, it was wonderful. I'd trained and looked forward to this for a year and before that also for a year. I didn't have a time to beat, but I was looking forward to it. Thank goodness it went well to run through Jerusalem, around the campus of the Hebrew University, first at Givat Ram through the centre of town, up to Mount Scopus, to see the view of the Dead Sea, to pass tragically the site where my father's uncle in the convoy in 1948 lost his life, to come through the old city, to run out through Zion Gate and then down and up past the house of the President of the State of Israel. It was wonderful. President Rivlin stood outside. I must have passed at the right time. He shook everybody's hand. When I made my way through Emek Rafaim and up to kilometre 34, I was met by Noach Brown, who created and founded Israel Guide Dogs, and who met me with a six-month-old puppy, and we ran a couple of hundred yards together. By that time, I knew that even if I had to crawl, I would make the finish, but I did not have to crawl and end on that moat, because I had the wind of everybody who supported me, dog lovers, marathon lovers, my community and its supporters behind me. It was a wonderful experience. I hope, please God, I'll have the health to do it again. Thank you very much to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our Rabbinic Thought for the Month. And that's it, everyone. We've done our first episode here from JW3. I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as we have. We have to thank all of our guests to Barach Barend Valaman, who's in Israel, telling us about the forthcoming Israeli elections. Thank you very much to Rabbi Simon Taylor, grandson of the late Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen, MBE. We also have to thank Emily Rose, who was telling us about Scratch Night, which will be on at JW3 on the 19th of May at 7.30 p.m. JW3.org.uk for more information on that. And last, but by absolutely no means least, we have to thank fundraiser Richard Pollins and Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. And of course, thank you very much at home for listening. And we can't possibly forget the team, including our producer, Sue Greenberg. Please do remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. And we hope that you will join us next month here on The Jewish Views. You can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, to listen to this or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views. But from the whole team here at JW3, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.